Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 30 a.m. Welcome back. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 a.m. on your dial. You're listening to Ayan. Across from me, we have George. Good morning. Uh, Anya and Lauren. Good morning. So what did everybody get up to? This morning. Uh, over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anya, you sound like death warmed up. Yeah, I was dying in my bed. So that's what I was doing. I know, it's so traumatic. I know. know, What can we do if we don't laugh? What about you guys? We need to talk about that off air. Um, I I helped my partner move house yesterday, and then I had my staff party. Oh, well, you look very fresh for someone who's had a staff party. I'm actually feeling not too bad. I'm really excited for today's topic, so maybe that's... Partly why. Also <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> oh goodness. So oh, I went to the St Kilda Festival. Mm. How was it? Uh, hell. <laughs> oh. oh. It, it wasn't hell, but it wasn't too great either. Uh, it, it, it was very chilled. It was very chilled. Um, sorry, the people I was with were very chilled, <laughs> but mm. the whole place was just so extra. It was just so loud. Too many people. Too much noise. And I was like, oh, where do I turn to? There's no safe space. Mm. Mm. It's not really, it's such a small, like, narrow place that killed it as well when you pack that many people and it's just like, it feels like a lot. Yeah, Mm. it was Mm. full on. There were some amazing acts. Um, uh, There was Hancock, there was uh, Daniel. um, Elia? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was Dreaming Now. So there was, the the acts were really good. It's Mm. just the space and the environment. Mm. It's hectic for someone who's not used to the festival life. Mm. Mm. Speaking of acts, I'm so excited. Um, I just found out that Sam for the Great is supporting Lauren Hill on mm. Wednesday night. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God, I'm going to jump out of my skin. <laughs> so you're, who, are you going as well, Anya? I am. Yeah, yeah, I'm going. Unless so God jealous. something happens. Don't you touch wood uh, right why now. Why am I putting Don't. in the air? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm... I've, touch I'm, wood. I'm, I'm going. Oh, I'm so we'll jealous. Mm. Um, I'll FaceTime you. My finance Good. is coming. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. last summer school. Yes. Mm. Mm, we did it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> did we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did. So what, what, so what have we done so far? We've done sovereignty and self-determination. Mm-hmm. We've done race and identity. We've done feminism, gender and sexuality, and then disability and accessibility last week. Mm-hmm. And what are we doing today? Abolishing prisons, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess I think a perfect topic to end on because it sort of combines a lot of the sort of issues that we have been discussing. It kind of links all of these different movements together. Mm. So it's kind of, yeah, I think I'm really looking forward to today. I was actually thinking this morning as I was getting ready, I feel like abolition is like the logical extension of Mm. all of the learning that people do when when their thinking becomes a bit more left and radicalised and that kind of thing because it just 
nothing else makes sense once you know everything you know. Mm. Um, and then I feel like people like Angela Davis become so important because they pull it all together and say, well, if you believe X, Y, Z, mm. the only answer is abolishing prisons. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I think you're right. I think it's really great that we're ending with this and yeah. super excited. Yeah. And we'll talk about what different sorts of prisons are during the show and and all the different sort of difficult topics that come up when you mention prison abolition mm. throughout mm. the show. Yeah. Um, but did anyone see the Age article that came out maybe a couple of days ago about the women in you know women in prison mm. being increasingly criminalized and penalized even though they themselves are survivors of family violence and yeah, yeah. so I think wow. it feels like the right yeah. time to talk about this yes definitely Absolutely. Yeah. we might go to a song before we get into the really heavy stuff yes actually could we play an ad and then I just double check if the song is <laughs> okay to play yeah. Tuesday breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this. You know, it's very good. It yeah. keeps a positive mindset in our mind. You know, and we really appreciate it. Because of where we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah. Because of where we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. I wait for young ones come off the truck there the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene so it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like yeah. They're starting to look up to me so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an ancestor you'll know way back when. You're tuned into Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR and we're doing our special summer school series, our last episode on prison abolition. And we're going to play a track now by Nina Simone. I believe this is Ayan's favourite song as well, or one of Nina Simone's favourite songs. And it's called I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel To Be Free. into Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio and we're going to um, listen to a TED Talk now. Um, a TED Talk is not usually the, uh, the 3CR <laughs> way maybe but um, this is just a really good explainer about um, what it means to abolish prisons, what society would look like, why people would choose to do that um, and just a, a good starting point we thought um, and it's by a woman named Maya Shenwa. Um, it's from TEDx Baltimore, and um, it has um, a US focus, but that is applicable to Australia as well, and the principles are much the same. So enjoy. Imagine a country in which millions of people live inside cages. These cages are located far from their homes and families, families, 
often in the middle of remote cornfields. Some people are caged for five years, 10 years, 20 years, sometimes their entire lives. It's not just anyone who ends up in a cage in this imaginary country. It's the society's most marginalized people, people who are already oppressed, already vulnerable. Now, you probably know I'm not actually talking about an imaginary country. I'm referring to the United States of America. This country contains less than 5% of the world's population, but almost a quarter of the global prison population. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. 10 million children in this country have experienced parental incarceration. They've been torn from a parent. Beyond that, 70,000 children have themselves been living in cages. And we do cage our most marginalized people. As the prison activist and scholar Angela Davis has said, prison has become our response of first resort to so many of society's problems, from poverty to homelessness to mental illness to drug addiction. And overwhelmingly, it's poor people and people of color who are caged. In particular, black people are more than five times as likely as white people to be incarcerated in this country. So lately, you may have heard some of these facts popping up in the news. Just recently, over the past few years, incarceration has been making the headlines. This is partially due to a state budget crunch and a new conservative enthusiasm for reform. Suddenly, a number of politicians are wondering whether we should really be spending $80 billion a year on prisons. But also, this shift toward recognizing mass incarceration is due to decades of work by prison activists and racial justice activists and black liberation activists bringing this issue into the public consciousness. So finally, we have this mainstream awareness that this prison system had some major issues. It's almost trendy to care about prison reform now. There was a recent headline in the Hartford Current that said, prison reform is the new kale. <laughs> sort of is. Um, but current prison reformers are working on everything from marijuana decriminalization to sentencing changes to better conditions in prison. It's exciting that so many people understand there needs to be a change, and many of the changes being advocated are really exciting. But still, most of these mainstream reforms assume that for the right people, whoever they are, prison works. This is a fundamental flaw of mainstream prison reform. This idea 
that if we just change a few things, the correctional system can indeed function as a correctional system. The assumption is that cages can keep us safe. But here's the reality. Two out of three people coming out of prison are rearrested within three years. Prison is not correctional, whatever that even means. Prison is a cycle. So how does that cycle function? Well, first of all, the same people are targeted again and again by police. Policing in this country is grounded in white supremacy and in anti-black racism. So most of us have at some point in our lives committed an act that could be considered a crime. But it's marginalized people, and in particular black people, who are targeted, who are policed, who are arrested for those acts. Policing is the gateway to prison. And so this systematic racial targeting ensures a steady supply of people flowing into prisons. A second way that this prison cycle functions is that many, many of the people who commit the acts that we refer to as crimes are doing so in the service of their own survival. Prison does nothing to address poverty or economic injustice. Actually, people coming out of prison have even fewer resources and even fewer opportunities than they did going in. Plus, they are emerging from prison with a felon label, and that label makes them even less able to get jobs and housing and education. And very often, they return to criminalized acts in order to survive. A third way that this cycle of prison functions is that hurt people hurt people. So, yes, when we think about the people who are incarcerated for violent crimes, often we don't think about the fact that most of them have been victims of violence in the past. And so prison does not help people heal. Actually, prison continues that violence that people have experienced. So on the one hand, I'm talking about the various acts of physical and sexual violence that take place behind bars, many of them actually perpetrated by authorities. But also, we need to keep in mind that caging a human being is in itself a violent act. The trauma of prison stays with people after they leave prison, and it perpetuates that cycle of harm and violence. Another way in which this cycle of prison functions, and this one is particularly important to me as a family member of a formerly incarcerated person, is that prison cuts off connections. It isolates people from the world. When you cut someone off from their family and their loved ones and their community, you are setting them up for failure. You're cutting the ties that provide support and motivation. 
Even the Bureau of Prisons recognizes this. They say that the number one predictor of whether or not someone will reoffend is whether they have support from their family. But what they don't acknowledge is that prison itself breaks down those vital links. Now, what are the rippling effects of breaking down those links? Well, let's think about those 10 million children who've experienced parental incarceration. What does that do? Well, those children are more likely to live in poverty. They are more likely to drop out of school. And they are much more likely to go to prison themselves. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're just hearing from Maya Shenwar, um, her TED Talk from TEDx Baltimore called Beyond Reform, Abolishing Prisons. And we'll get back to that audio right now. Prison produces more prison. We can see this in the fact that prison has not eliminated itself. The correctional system hasn't corrected itself out of existence. Instead, it has grown. It's expanded by 500% over the past 40 years. And at this point, even mainstream social scientists are starting to say that prison is criminogenic. It causes crime. So meanwhile, we need to think about the victims of crimes. What does prison do for them, for crimes in which there actually is a victim? Well, first of all, you know, it might provide some sense of vindication and temporary safety. And we have to take that seriously. We do need practices of accountability in our society. But prison does not provide reparations for people who've experienced harm. It does not provide resources for them to heal. It doesn't even provide an apology. And since prison is a place that promotes harm and violence, it certainly does not provide victims with, with any indication that what happened to them, the harm that happened, will not happen again. So from all of these angles, we can see that the prison system is not just broken. It is built on a fiction. The problem with the current talk around modest sentencing reforms is that as the prison abolitionist scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore has said, we have taken a detour into reform for a few while there is no change for the many. We can't just shave the prison population down around the edges. We can't just try to make prison a nicer place to live. For a human being, there is no such thing as a good cage. We need to dig deeper than reform. So let's picture a different imaginary society. This is a society without human cages without a prison system. So you might ask, what replaces prison? Well, let's think about that for a second. Prison is this one institution that is supposed to address everything from drug possession to serial murder. How can we possibly think that one thing can address thousands of disparate issues in disparate communities? 
addressing harm doesn't look like that. So there's never going to be this one solution that waltzes in to replace prison. Figuring out strategies for dealing with harm in our communities is a collective responsibility that all of us share. Right now, all over the country, we are seeing local success stories, communities doing what works for them. We're seeing places that have eliminated juvenile jails, and meanwhile, communities have built up restorative justice practices, bringing together victims and youth who've caused harm to work together towards solutions that both help victims heal and hold the youth accountable. We're seeing neighborhoods that have drastically reduced gun violence because groups of mothers and grandmothers have come together to spend time outside at night building community. Across the country, people are building movements for racial justice and black liberation, getting at the root causes of why massive numbers of black and brown people are being policed and incarcerated. A number of communities around the country are pushing for the decriminalization of drugs, challenging that definition of crime in the first place, and pushing for the establishment of optional public health-based, community-based programs for people who are struggling with addiction. Also, we have to remember that so many people who commit what we call crimes do so in order to survive. And so we need to start changing those structures. We need to support housing, education, health care, child care, the arts, in all communities. These are things that have actually been shown to promote real, long-term safety. But these are just a couple of ideas. I do not have all the answers, and really no one does, because we still live in a society that's mostly trapped in the prison mindset. So, for example, what do we do about this tiny fraction of incarcerated people who have committed very serious violent acts repeatedly and may need to be separated from their potential victims? This is something that we are going to have to figure out together over the long term as we evolve away from prison. Moving beyond prison will require collective creativity, all of us working together toward a safer and freer world. So as you leave here today, imagine that new society a place where people are not disappeared into cages, a place where harm and violence are actually confronted, a place where we can imagine the end of violence. Prison doesn't work. We need to come together and imagine what does.
3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the Community Radio Codes of Practice. The Codes of Practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February the 21st to March the 8th at Cinema Nova. Tickets from transitionsfilmfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Friday the 1st of March at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 94198377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people. I think we should laugh now. I don't want them thinking that we do not know how to smile. I think this is happy. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George, Lauren and myself, Anya. Next up, we're very, very pleased to be talking to Associate Professor Dr. Catherine McFarlane. Associate Professor Catherine McFarlane is based at the Centre for Law and Justice at Charles Stewart University. Kath is the Chief Investigator in a Criminology Research Council-funded project examining the views of residential care workers, police, magistrates and other frontline professionals regarding children in care's involvement in the justice system. This research builds on her doctoral research into care criminalisation, which is the involvement of children in out-of-home care system in the New South Wales criminal justice system. Kath has previously held a variety of policy roles in bureaucracy and politics, including as a senior policy officer in the Attorney General's Department. Um, Between 2011 and 2015, she was Chief of Staff to a New South Wales Minister across numerous portfolios. Incredible, incredible person, and we're really delighted to talk to her today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kath. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Kath, let's start by um, talking about your thesis, which explores care criminalisation. What does that mean? Care criminalisation is a name that I get to um, the process by which children and young people in out-of-home care mm. uh, become involved in the criminal justice system, whether that's um, through police cautions and warnings or all the way up through charge and ultimately detention. 
And by out-of-home care, I mean specifically those kids that have been taken away from their natural parents for a variety of reasons. Mm. Um, might be abuse or neglect or the parents are in jail or the parents may have a mental illness or an intellectual disability and can't look after them for a particular period of time. Mm. So the state steps in, takes those children to provide them with um, a better life. Um, and unfortunately, uh, mm. my research and that of others has shown that um, that often doesn't work out in the way that it's intended to. Mm. And is there, or what is the link between children in care and children in juvenile detention centres or jails? Because they're often confused as the same term, but what's really the difference? Well, the confusion from the same term comes from a bit of uh, problems with the research. So mm. often we hear things like many children who are in juvenile detention, so children who are alleged to have committed an offence and are in custody on bail, mm. uh, awaiting bail determination, or those who have been convicted of an offence, we often um, get told things like they've suffered abuse and neglect in their past. So that often gets mixed up with people saying, oh, they're from the care system. Whereas in fact, what um, my research has shown and that of others is that there is a real overlap between children who are taken away by the state for their own protection mm. and those who end up in the juvenile justice system because they've supposedly broken the law. Mm. And really, horrifically, what I found was that it's actually the care process that's meant to protect children that actually can accelerate and escalate children into the youth offending system. Mm. And there's, I mean, there's already been a Royal Commission about children in care and you know from from 60 years ago and it sounds like it's still something that's happening today is that fair to say uh, yeah absolutely there's been on average a royal commission or a state inquiry in australia about every two years going back for about 130 years which mm. is the beginning of the state system so every two or so years um government or independent inquiries have a look at um, the situation facing kids in care and they invariably report the same exact things. Um, but one of the things which they really don't focus on, in, in my argument, enough is the way in which the systems that we've designed to protect children actually end up giving them worse outcomes, perhaps even than if we left them where they were. Mm, yeah, and in, you, you write a lot about this and, and in one of your articles you actually state that policymakers are reluctant to acknowledge the care system is producing criminals. And could you expand on that? Why is there this reluctance? I think there's a variety of reasons. Mm. Um, and it, it's actually quite complicated on one hand, but I guess simply it comes down to human nature. What I found is that policymakers often don't believe that it could be things that they've done. Often they would argue in the best interest of the child or with good intentions. And you see that in the reports a lot. Mm. Um, that something that people like them have designed um, actually lead to incredibly poor outcomes like um, really low education outcomes, poor health, like involvement in the justice system. So they kind of can't believe that people like them created these systems mm -hmm. and it's really hard to shake their, their mindset. Other things are that um, really the prison system, the juvenile justice system, um, argued, uh, arguably need scapegoats. We need people in our jails. We yeah. need... Mm. Um, kids in our juvenile detention centres. And for all the discussion that goes on about uh, trying to eliminate crime and making the community safer, mm. we ultimately, I think, need children like this to keep the system going. Mm. Yeah, to fill the beds.
Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah. And there, of course, you know, certain groups of kids who are overrepresented in the juvenile just, justice system, Aboriginal kids, for example, and then this ostensibly translates into the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in adult prisons. What do you think this says about the state's use of prisons as a way of committing violence against Aboriginal people? Well, many people have demonstrated that the use of prison from the earliest days has in fact been a form of uh, colonisation mm-hmm. and colonialism. It's a form of state violence which is used in every country that's been invaded um, and it, it's still used today. Aboriginal people are experiencing the legacy effects of that uh, left over from 200 years, but they're also experiencing the multiple disadvantage that comes from uh, intergenerational or transgenerational transmission disadvantage. Mm. So when you've had your land taken off you, when you've had your government uh, taken away, when you've had your children removed in particular, these things cause harm throughout a society that individuals often struggle with. Mm. And that can be reflected in um, their increased visibility for particular offences and what the state decides is criminal behaviour. If you want to compare, for example, with the Banking Royal Commission that's just come out, we're talking there about the theft of, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars from people that, um, you know, that were even dead, um, the continuation of, of the banks taking their money. And mm. yet people shy away from talking about that being criminal behaviour. Mm. Yet somebody commits an offence and steals your wallet, everyone is agreed that's criminal behaviour. Mm. So states ideas of what constitutes violence or what constitutes criminal behaviour really do influence the kind of people who end up in our jail system. Mm, and that also, I guess, influences the way we perceive certain groups of people um, who, who perform this sort of behaviour because of you know, whatever reason, including intergenerational trauma and poverty and all sorts of things. Yeah, and one of the problems we have is that we're conditioned or we're taught from a very early age to be afraid of you know, strangers, stranger danger, mm. to treat criminals or people who've offended as always as being criminals and as if they're stuck in that Mm. moment in time. Mm. The worst thing they ever did is what we always remember about them. And that's not to say that there aren't incredibly dangerous people or problematic people involved in the criminal justice system because a small number are incredibly dangerous and are problematic. Mm. But the vast majority of people go to jail or juvenile jail for short periods of time they get out. And my argument is from a community safety point of view, if we are actually interested in rehabilitation Mm. and we are interested in not creating more criminals, then we should be looking at those pathways into the jail system through the care system Mm. and out of jail through um, on release of what we provide to people in order to ensure that there's no guarantee that they will come back and commit worse offences. Yeah, you're right. And a lot of kids in care who, you know, um, suffer abuse and and have um, horrific conditions imposed upon them then go on to sort of inflict that sort of violence on other people because of what they've gone through and and then it becomes sort of a vicious cycle in a way. There there is, yeah, it is thought that. um, The research still isn't very strong on that. Mm. Um, There is is some material, particularly from people who have lived the system, so people who have been in care or those who, prisoners who are writing about their childhood and those links they make are quite strong. Yeah. However, there really needs to be a lot more research. Um, a lot of what I was finding looking at the juvenile justice system, so talking about children, those aged 18 and uh, between 10 and 18, mm. 
the kind of offences or the crimes that they were committing that was getting them involved wasn't really crimes of violence or the sort of things we think of when we think of prisons. Mm. What it was were things that if it happened in someone's own home, the police wouldn't be called. So children were doing things as minor as swearing at a carer or mm. uh, breaking a cup or writing on text on a wall, mm. uh, with text on a wall, or, you know, small things like that. And that kind of um, behaviour was was responded to in a way that escalated, and we ended up getting police involved. And as a result, what we saw was that kids were coming before the court for really minor things, but along the way they picked up all these other charges of resist arrest or mm. swearing at police or assaulting a carer. Mm. And that, that blew up into a situation of a child that looks like they have no respect for authority and they don't care about anything or anyone. Mm. And the judges, magistrates sentenced them as if they were these hardened offenders mm. rather than kids whose um, issues that they've had in the past and the way the system responded to them led to this set of circumstances. Yeah. And we saw that over and over and over again in research. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like there, um, I guess there needs to be an overhaul of the entire system and I suppose today's today's show is on prison abolition, so I really do want to get into what what how all of this fits into the theme of prison abolition. But um, maybe we'll take a quick break and we'll get back to it. Sure. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty, and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are in the middle of our very special summer school program about prison abolition, um, and we're chatting to Dr. Kath McFarlane about um, kids in the juvenile justice system and how that intersects with prison abolition. Um, now, Kath, based on what you've been talking about so far, it almost sounds like uh, you know kids in care and and who then end up in juvenile uh, detention centres or, or prisons, you know, sort of are fed into a pipeline that then um, you know, goes into adult prisons. So how, I guess, where do we start with with this problem? How does prison abolition and kids in care come into play? I think that's a great question. Um, a lot of the time the focus on prison abolition is about um, making sure that there's no need for prison um, sort of at the, at the far end, mm-hmm. at the idea of um, making sure people don't return. In one way, I guess that's sort of the official corrections policy in terms of reducing recidivism rates. Mm. But as 
you know, many researchers have shown uh, corrections themselves would not be slow to admit, I think. Um, they have very poor success at that. Um, significant numbers of people uh, return to jail, you know, 45, 50% of people who have been in custody return. With children, when you're talking about children in care and those who go onto the prison system, I think we need to do two things. The first one is to prevent the easy way in which children are criminalised for their behaviour mm. in a way that it wouldn't happen if it was your own child you were talking about. Mm. And there have been some moves um, in New South Wales and there's been calls for this in the Northern Territory Royal Commission into Dondale and also in Victoria to um, have things like protocols whereby police and care workers um, and lawyers in the court supposedly work together in order to reduce or to divert children who've come before the court for things like um, this minor property damage or apprehended violence orders against carers that really ought not have been taken out. Mm. So it's to, to not criminalise them in the first place. Um, I'm a bit sceptical about that protocol. I, I don't see it as anything more than... Um, a restatement of what we're all meant to be doing anyway. Mm. But other people have a lot of hope and faith in it, and, and I hope I'm proved wrong, and that does end up in mm. reducing the number of kids coming through that care-to-prison pipeline. Mm. But the other end of it, and this is where I think prison abolitionists who are interested in focusing on um, reducing the jail population really should be advised to look, is research has indicated that when you try to get people out of jail, when you do, when governments or... Um, campaigns do try to uh, abolish prisons or get people out, they tend to forget the heart of people. And those people tend to be um, people who've been through the care system. Mm -hmm. And we know this from the UK, so that as the UK recently reduced its juvenile jail population mm -hmm. and it got people out through diversion, mm -hmm. um, they left the, what was seen as the hardest cases there. But they were the hardest cases, care, care kids, not because of the offences they committed, but because they had so little support systems, they had nowhere else to go mm. and they had no one who was, like, talking for them. And so, ironically, the children that we um, are supposed to protect and that have really, on many instances, done the least serious crimes, mm. nonetheless have nuisance and long-term histories that make them look like they're really serious criminals. Mm. So if you're a prison abolitionist, I think you should very much be looking at the nature of the offences that many people have that bring them to jail and try and do something about the triviality of many of those offences. Mm. And, and maybe to give an example, um, it's not specifically geared at people who've been in the care system, but it will definitely overlap. And that is the campaign that's been launched by Debbie Kilroy and Sisters Inside, mm. the Free the People campaign in Queensland, which looks at, um, it's a brilliant idea, and it looks at paying the fines of Aboriginal mothers in WA. Mm. So in Western Australia, you can go to jail if you don't pay a fine, say if you have a dog licence um, and you didn't pay, or, so you have a dog and you didn't pay for its licence or you have a driving speeding ticket or something like that. Mm. If you don't pay the fine, for, for, and that could be because of poverty, um, you can actually be arrested and end up serving time in jail. So what Sisters Inside did was that they did a crowdsourcing um, campaign in order to raise money to pay the fines of Aboriginal mothers. And why this was really important is because those mothers lose their children to the care system and you end up having the second generation coming through mm. of their mum in jail and mm. then the kids entering that supposedly protective system, which we know goes on to incriminalise them. Mm.
Mm. And it sounds like, um, and this is something that Angela Davis writes about a lot as well, that prison abolition goes in hand with um, establishing systems that um, catch people when they have, so that they don't fall through the cracks, you know, um, housing situations and, and poverty and, and that, sort of, that sort of thing as well. And prison abolition, really, um, the, one of the earliest uh, people who, who wrote about this was Foucault, and a lot of people roll their eyes when they mm. when they when you talk about a theorist like Foucault because he is a bit hard to, to wade through. Mm. But one of the things he said, which I think is really important and which I found surprisingly omitted from discussion in any talk of prison abolition, is that he said that the prison system starts with the child welfare system. Mm. So he gave examples of the care homes, essentially, in France that... Um, that propelled kids from supposedly protective environments into the youth justice and onto that adult prison system. Mm. So again, I don't think you can really be a prison abolitionist or believe in um, prison being reserved for those who commit the most serious violent offences that would endanger the community. Mm. If you believe anything along that scale, then you really need to be looking at the people we have in there and why is it that people who come from an out-of-home care background Mm. where they were placed to their own protection go on to be up to a third or a half of any prison system across the Western world. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, prison abolition starting with... um I guess abolishing the child welfare system seems seems like a very um, very sensible place to start. And I do want to ask you a question about the recent legislation that was passed in New South Wales about um, uh, enabling the adoption of, of children from the state's foster care system without parental consent. Um, that was passed maybe maybe a couple of months ago. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and what are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, just to clarify, um, I'm not recommending the abolition of the child welfare system. I think um, we do need a protective system for children Mm. uh, who can't live with their parents because of abuse or neglect or because their parents are unable to care for them for a variety of reasons. It could be parental incarceration. I don't think we need to to abolish the system. What I think we need to do is to recognise and acknowledge that that system many times actually creates the circumstances that kids, that lead to kids offending and then punishes those kids when they do the sort of natural thing and start committing offences. So in terms of the New South Wales legislation, that is based on American idea and it's been adopted in Britain and a number of other places where it's recognised in one hand, and if you look at the, um, the comments that politicians were making about why we needed this, it's basically an acknowledgement that the child welfare system isn't good across any state or territory and that we keep having all these problems that are identified time and time again about abuse within the system. So adults or other children abusing children, we put there for their own safety. Mm. So in sort of recognition that um, this system's not, not at all good, the idea was that um, we would get children out of it so that you adopt them out to, uh, as the language they use a lot, forever families safe families. Mm. The idea is also, in theory, that you only adopt them out if um, the natural family, the birth parents, are unable to have them back or not interested or it's too dangerous. So that's the theory behind it. And it it sounds fine. What's wrong with that? Mm. Until you look at what happens in other jurisdictions and until you consider the particular experience of Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islanders in Mm. Australia. And if you look at both of those things, what we see is that people whose um, children are in prison 
are the ones who were targeted and the most affected by that legislation in the US. So there were thousands upon thousands of women who, because of the constraints on the corrections institutions, like the difficulty in them ringing their kids, inability to write letters, even if they could actually read and write, mm. um, difficulty where the care system refused to bring children to the prisons for visits. These things were all taken by the child welfare system in the US as being proof that the mothers didn't want anything to do with their kids and that they had, in official language, relinquished parental control. And that meant that if there was no ongoing contact between a child and a parent for two years, that child was therefore considered eligible mm. for adoption. And that's one of the real dangers with this legislation in New South Wales is that you essentially have a population, prison population, that's dependent upon everybody else bringing their kids in to see them and keep in contact. Mm. And you have those kids that are essentially the most vulnerable to being adopted. It doesn't necessarily mean that their parents weren't good parents or able to look after them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't be restored back. But the result of what we see in the, U in the US was that thousands upon thousands of kids were separated from their parents. And why that matters is that the research also shows, adopted or not, many children search, like we all do, search for their identity and they run back to their natural families, even if we'd probably rather that they didn't. Mm. Uh, many of them will. Mm. So again, you're setting kids up to fail um, mm. It doesn't understand the dynamics. And when you take into account the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experiences of colonisation and forced separation, mm. um, the nervousness and the fear and the history, the memories that that brought back led to um, protests from almost every Aboriginal organisation involved in the child welfare system. Mm. Yeah, um, and we might have to wrap up soon, but uh, before we do, um, do you have any favourite scholars, writers or abolitionists that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Uh, sure. Well, I tend to like the people that have um, lived and written about their experiences themselves. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about Aboriginal people, um, uh, Roberta Sykes, her novels on snake dreaming and black majority talk about the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the juvenile justice system and adult prisons and how that came about. And she wrote in the uh, early 90s, late 80s. And mm. I think that was a really golden time for people in Australia to write about their own experiences. It also um, led to writers like uh, Bernie Matthews and John Killick, right, John Killick's writing now, people who were in jail for violent offences um, and who wrote about how their childhood impacted upon and their treatment in the jails impacted upon the kind of offenders that they subsequently be became. Mm. Um, of course, abolitionist Angela Davis, you've already mentioned, and um, lived experience uh, of Debbie Kilroy in Sisters Inside, Flat Out, mm. uh, in Victoria, the Women's Justice Network in New South Wales. Mm. We've also got people writing about care specifically now, and I like a UK um, author, an academic called Claire Fitzpatrick, who writes about the overlap between the English care system and the prison system. Mm. And her work's amazing, and, and the work of the Prisoner, Prison Reform Trust and the Howard Lead in the UK, who talk about all of these issues and come up with real solutions mm. for what needs to be done to stop the care-to-prison pipeline. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for all of that, Kath. And it was, yeah, this was a great interview and lots to think about and unpack. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you.
3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Kamu semua ada dengar 3CR Community Radio, please subscribe now. Tustamiyuna ila ila 3CR Community Radio araja al-ishtrakal an. Ninggal unggalin samuha wanoli 3CR ay kertu kondir kondir kal. Winri nayinggal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Netsuk ketsek radio i gairanin horatanguda melburni hai kaotin. Hima artsan akrevetsek ifer 3CR i antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Vicky Roach starts by explaining an example of a case of domestic violence. Well, I just watched a video this morning of an Aboriginal woman who'd gone to the police so many times um, to tell them that her husband was threatening her with knives and... Um, machetes and all this type of thing, mm. and they virtually ignored her, and um, he eventually killed her. Um, what justice would look like would be that um, police would respond appropriately um, at the first instance of these sorts of things. Um, we know how how violence escalates. Uh, we know that it, it it gets worse with time. Um, to the point that where so many Aboriginal women are, are their domestic violence escalates to fatality. Mm. They're, they're killed. And I think the police don't take Aboriginal women seriously or think it's none of their business. That's, that's a real shame of the thing. Um, and look, I've experienced that myself. Um, I received a blow to the head with a big heavy glass ashtray. And um, I had a concussion and very deep gash in my head. And uh, the police came. One of the neighbours had called them. And they told me to get back inside and behave myself. You know, that's that's the type of thing Aboriginal women are up against when it comes to, to domestic violence or family violence. And if the police don't respond appropriately um, to our complaints and to our concerns these things are going to continue to happen. The, the, the government, federal government, has to put money into, into women's refuges, places where they can go to escape. This, this woman that I was talking about in the video, she had seven children. So, of course, no refuge was going to take her. Mm. She had too many kids. So there mm. was no room, no room at the inn. And uh, as a result, this poor woman died, brutally yes. stabbed in front of her daughter. Mm. And that was, again, the police not responding appropriately. There had been several serious threats. Can you imagine? Mm. Uh, like, that woman had children. Um, all of them will have been scarred for life. The little girl that actually missed her mother being killed. Um, who knows what will happen to her as she gets older, mm. as she grows and... and, and sort of realises, understands what actually happened. Many of us here are all on the same wavelength, but then there are representatives of government as well, mm. and I hope the message gets through their ears um, that we need more funding, that, that we need more programs and, and more um, refuges mm. for women and their children to go to. Yeah, this is this is not one of those issues that can be swept under the carpet mm. anymore, as domestic violence always has been. Mm. 
It's right out in the open now, and we need to do something about it. Well, the barriers to justice for Aboriginal women are predominantly the judicial system, which um, stereotypes Aboriginal women, and um, we're, we're criminalised for for much much more minor offences than the average woman. Two white girls walking down the street, maybe sharing a, a beer or something like that, would go unnoticed. Two Aboriginal women, however, doing the same thing on the other side of the street, would be pulled up and possibly arrested for drinking in public. Um, we are criminalised for more minor offences, um, leads to prison, um, and of course often, well, especially in my case, um, I was criminalised at the age of two when I was taken away from my mother. They charged me with being uncontrollable, neglected and exposed to moral danger. And I was, neglect I was neglected by way of destitution. You know, it was pretty hard for two and a half year olds to get a job in those days. <laughs> Every time I got into trouble at school or didn't clean my room properly, it would be a phone call to the child welfare. Next minute I'm in children's court getting charged again with the same three things, uncontrollable, neglected and exposed to moral danger. Mm. And eventually that led to girls' homes. More of the same, I started running away, more of the same. And as soon as I got into any real trouble, like committed an actual offence, um, I went straight to prison. I was only 17. I wasn't even old enough to go to prison. That was Vicky Roach, ending on her own experiences of incarceration and how early that began for her. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? Uh, so my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marta and I'm 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70-year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR, union issues and workers' struggles. Feed Radical Radio, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with work and bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, 
We need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 9419 8377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. What a great community announcement. Um, you are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We are in our final summer school of 2019. It is on abolitionist politics um, or prison abolition today. Um, and we are about to get into the idea of abolitionist feminism and then the related idea of carceral feminism. Um, so we found this great podcast called Very Loose Women Love, um, I think it's Irish, um, and there's just this a great couple of minutes where they sort of really break down what abolitionist feminist feminism is um, and why it's important. So we're going to hear that, and then we're going to come back and have a bit of a discussion um, between ourselves because these are ideas that we've um, we've sort of been coming to and developing um, within the Tuesday Breakfast family. Um, so we want to have that chat on air. So this is Very Loose Women, and enjoy. Yeah, on point, on point. Topical, topical. Um, so this week we're talking about abolitionist feminism, and we've got special guest Mo here with us, who's worked in the women's voluntary sector for over a decade, um, supporting those in the mental health and criminal justice system. Um, and I'm going to start with a broad, non-academic definition of abolitionist feminism, which Mo can feel free to tear apart, um, <laughs> as um, a, bra- a branch of feminism that has prison abolition at its heart, um, and I, I kind of take it to include things, uh, in, to include anti-racism and a wider critique of the state and how it operates in relation to um, racism and incarceration. But it would be great to start by asking you, Mo, to, to define what abolitionist feminism is, if you could. Uh, thanks, Bert. <laughs> <laughs> you should really have thought about this question. Um, abolitionist feminism or feminism abolition um, kind of comes from the intersection of, of different things. So abolition, prison abolition, um, historically has concentrated on the over-incarceration of uh, men in prison mm-hmm. and the over-incarceration of certain groups of people in prison as well. Um, and feminism, um, and it's particularly anti-violence um, responses, uh, or feminist responses to anti-violence, have focused on incarceration. So abolitionist feminism, feminist abolitionism, um, kind of bring, brings together the intersections of race and gender, um, where people discussing race weren't considering gender and people discussing gender weren't considering race and in particular how black women were being over-criminalised and over-victimised by both the state and in interpersonal relationships. So abolitionist feminism kind of comes out from that and it's about building the world we want rather than the one we think we can get. So imagining a world without the carceral system that we have, which is prisons, police without locating the solutions to inequality, structural inequality and interpersonal violence within the current carceral systems to look towards other ways of doing that. So that was um, a bit of an excerpt from a podcast called Very Loose Women um, from July last year um, talking about abolitionist feminism and I I don't know, what did you guys think of that? I thought that set it up nicely and... um, I don't know, very interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So we wanted to kind of 
maybe we'll start by setting up the terms um, that are thrown around a lot when, we, when it comes to prison abolition, and particularly um, being feminists within this space. Um, when I was researching for this discussion, I saw a lot of um, anti-sex work and anti-trans feminism um, trying to justify why we shouldn't abolish prisons. So I think this is something that really um, feminism itself needs to interrogate. So um, one term that you'll hear a lot is carceral feminism. And there's a great um, definition here from um, an academic named Mimi Kim. And that is that carceral feminism is a term that's signaling feminist reliance upon law enforcement as a dominant intervention strategy. Um, so uh, Elizabeth Bernstein, who's a professor of women's studies and sociology at Bernard University, also describes carceral feminism as failing to address the underlying economic conditions that exacerbate gendered violence um, and sort of looks at it as um, as focusing on the individual, um, individual offending and that sort of thing rather than addressing things like toxic masculinity or structural mm-hmm. patriarchy or white supremacy and those kinds of things which can be more to blame for um, violence against women. Yeah, I think that's very, very true and kind of linking to that podcast that you just shared, how it sort of is about kind of looking at all of these different inequalities and, you know, if we're thinking about these things as structures like the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, then it has to kind of look at all of these things that produce inequalities. And I was listening to Making Contact, which Mm. is a show that um, we play on 3CR, and... Uh, I think it was Mark Lamont Hill, so all of the um, the whole program was on prison abolition. Mark Lamont Hill was talking about how we need to kind of separate or kind of deconstruct this idea that punishment means ju- uh, that justice means punishment. Mm-hmm. And I guess when you think about you know things around family violence and intimate partner violence, it's quite hard to kind of look beyond that. But um, that seems to be such like a crucial idea that we can't think that that is the only way to kind of heal mm. and to move forward as a community by just punishing people. Yeah, mm. and that binary, that that black and white, good and evil, punishment mm. versus not, um, I think a really interesting example of that playing out in a really dangerous way is the misidentification of family violence perpetrators. So Women's Legal Service last year did some great research and found that I think it was something ridiculous, like almost 40% of um, situations where police responded to family violence um, incidents um, and apprehended Mm. an offender, Mm. quote-unquote. It was actually misidentified. And and so that's that that binary of there has to be a punishment outcome. Um, Yeah, not always always helpful, really. Yeah, and I think it really, um, I guess a lot of the things that we've been sharing today really focus on people sharing their lived experiences and when you do actually, and I guess it's something that we learnt a lot about at the conference, Anya, at the Imagining Prison Abolition Conference in Brisbane last year, when you actually hear people's stories of how they ended up in prison, Mm. you understand why the whole carceral system Mm. doesn't make sense and where feminism comes into play because the reason that a lot of women end up in prison is related to issues around family violence, you know, Mm. where where they come out like being considered the perpetrators of something when they might be defending themselves or their children. Mm. Um, and in also in that Making Contact podcast, it was talking about how important, like how we really need to think about how the media works to make people think that prisons make sense mm. and, it, and, and how it encourages people to believe in something against their own interests. Mm. So like the welfare system, they use as another example where people, you know, because of the way the media portrays 
welfare and people um, misusing it, then we think, oh, then welfare doesn't, you know, that's mm. ridiculous, we should get rid of it. And in the same way, people are sort of taught to think through the media that prisons make sense. Mm. And so there is this need to create a new narrative where we hear these stories from Vicky Roach or from other people mm. about, you know, how you, these inequalities kind of, like, lead to people being incarcerated and it's not them being, you know, criminal. Mm. Mm. It is interesting. It's it's one of those parts of society that's like never questioned. Okay. Like, mm. and I, I couldn't. The first time I heard about prison abolition, I was like, "That's ridiculous. Mm. Why would you get rid of prisons? Mm. That's yeah. where you put the people that are dangerous." Mm. You know, like it's it's. You're right. It's such a it's so ingrained, such a cornerstone. But I am interested. Like, what? So you have both been to the Imagining Abolition Conference, and Ayan, you read everything all the time. So I'm sure you've <laughs> read more on this than me. But what do you say when people ask, like, well, what do you do with the really dangerous, like the, the untreatable, really dangerous, lifelong criminal kind of, as in violent offenders? What do we do with them? Well, um, and I know I've been referring back to this podcast a lot, but there, there was something that was mentioned that I think relates to this, that um, there are some people that are not ready to be released from prison right now. And that's kind of an ongoing thing about healing and communities. And it's a process that we couldn't just completely dismantle all prisons globally today. It would Mm -hmm. have to be something that is developed over time. Um, And that a lot of these things are also about, you know, it is about the long term. It is about getting rid of these inequalities that, you know, result in people ending up in prison. And, And the thing with prison abolition that I think some people might assume is that prison abolition is about um, not holding people accountable and that's not what it is but it's it's about do we hold them accountable within a system that doesn't work Mm. within a system that you know creates further creates criminals like people will go in for like like a very insignificant charge and then come out you know disturbed and 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 just all the things that come from being in prison, you know, what they see, mm. the fact that their life isn't their life anymore. Mm. So mm. so the issue is, yes, we hold um, people accountable, but in a, in a, we've got to reimagine different ways of holding people accountable mm. and, you know, different, I guess... I, I don't want to say different prisons because that, that's not it, but we've got to hold them accountable but just not within the prison system because mm. that's not working mm. and it's not about rehabilitating people. Mm. Um, the TED Talk that you shared, Lauren, which was really good, The um, was it in Baltimore? I forgot mm. the name of the mm-hmm. podcast, but when she said, um, th- when she described prisons as cages, mm. you know, and, and as factories... It just goes to show you what prison is about. It's not about mm. reforming or making people less mm. prone to like mm. crim- criminal behavior. It's just like locking them away. Mm. It's, and when you think about the prison industrial complex, yeah. Mm. yeah, and throwing people in jail and locking them up isn't holding them accountable anyway. It's not like they have the space and time to think about why what they did was harmful or wrong. Um, that's just hiding the problem or problem in quotation marks until we figure out what to do with them mm. and it's a very easy solution and really what what we should be looking at even when it comes to you know yeah like this question of what do we do with dangerous people quote unquote or you know violent sexual offenders for example um is so easily solvable if if all we can do with them is 
throw them away, really. Yeah. But even at the conference, I think the the whole theme of imagining a world without prisons um, is a dangerous idea because it doesn't just start or end with destroying prisons. Mm. It means we have to radically overhaul systems as a whole. And, um, mm. you know, that means we need to work on um, systems to do with, with housing, mm. with child welfare protection system. Mm. Um, I know that, you know, the, the interview just then when Kath said she didn't really believe in abolishing child welfare system as a whole. And, well, I, I disagree. I think mm. that's, mm. that's what we need to do. And I think... Yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't. I was thinking out loud. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but mm. I think that's really relevant as well when we look at something that I know that we wanted to touch on is um, gender-based violence mm. and sexual violence, mm. um, because in that same vein, throwing people in prison doesn't address the root causes of power imbalance and gender imbalance and violent patriarchy. That so yes, we can lock up a sex offender mm. um, or a mm. person who has offended sexually against another person but that doesn't actually dismantle patriarchy. Mm. Just mm. like it doesn't dismantle out-of-home care, just like it mm. doesn't... Mm. Um, and I think it seems like, from my reading, that those are hard pills mm. for feminists to swallow mm. a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and with sex work, that's mm. a real sticking point for a lot of feminists as well because it's criminalised. And again, it comes back to those structures of... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that people, you know, this idea that we can just dispose of people and it's very through, through a kind of like capitalist mindset. Mm. It's just like, let's just dispose of all these people that, you know, we don't value in society mm. and we dehumanize these people and lock them up. Mm. And it's not addressing, as you're saying, it's not going to the head of the snake. Like, what are these systems? Yeah. Like patriarchy, capitalism, imperialism, mm. everything. And actually, you know, trying mm. to address that and change and change that mm. and if prisons worked and if prisons are supposed to be deterrents then people s wouldn't be committing crimes mm. but we're not addressing as I feel like I'm just echoing what everybody said mm. we're not addressing the root causes which is toxic masculinity which is um, when it comes especially gender based violence when it comes to people thinking they have a right over your body that they own your body mm. or that um, you are asking for it or because you want vocal like because your no wasn't vocal then you were okay with that and you know we let that th I think it's sort of letting men get get away with that because we're saying you know it's one or two men but we don't realize it's a system that enables these kind of behaviors and I'm not saying every man <laughs> is like um, a rapist waiting to happen but mm. if we don't address the things that make men prone or predisposed to committing these sort of crimes then you know we'll still continue to have prisons i mean mm. what's the point of prisons if these cr if these things aren't being solved mm. Mm. yeah and in that way and definitely not to let um anybody who sexually offends against another person off the hook here mm. but if you have been raised in a society that tells you x from the minute you were born and you act on x when you're older and you are the one that's punished, but the system is not even remotely touched. It's not approached. Mm -hmm. It's not tried to be dismantled. To me, that seems like we are failing mm. members of our society, both the victim survivor of the offending and also the person who offended, because mm. it's not giving them a chance to actually learn and yeah. be a respectful, mm. complete human. Yeah. <coughs> They've been brainwashed in this way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that article that you shared yesterday with us, Lauren, um, that talks about 
uh, I guess sexual offenders in particular um, also how we like to think of sexual offenders as these monstrous beings mm. you know stranger danger etc but a lot we know research has shown that a lot of this violence happens at homes Mm-mm. you know by people that that you know and I think um, we often forget that aspect of it as well yeah. that there are people who don't report these things because of those sort of dynamics and mm-hmm. there are people in very racialized communities who don't have a great relationship with the police for example and who can't go to them safely either mm. and so those are all things that we need to think about yeah but yeah. they also have to and I guess then it's not until we address things like racial, um, racial racist policing mm. and those kinds of things that we will have the recognition that police are not safe for some people mm-hmm. and actual tangible helpful options for survivors and survivors of all kinds of crimes as well not just not just sexual offending though that's a significant one mm-hmm. but how does the community heal outside of that yeah. or until we address the problems with policing we're not going to get to that point either yeah Absolutely. i think that article was really um really powerful and the sort of focus on healing how do mm. victim survivors heal, how do yeah. perpetrators heal, if that sort of becomes more important in this conversation, that's actually going to do mm. a lot, kind of, a lot more in terms of, you know, actually, like, helping mm. you know, and we address sh- these issues. I was just going to say, for those who are yeah. interested, we'll share the article, but it's called Navigating Justice for Sexual Abuse Survivors When You're a Prison Abolitionist and a Survivor, and it's on the website Afropunk. One quick thing I'll add before um, we play another CSA, because we're short on time, is that when in the article they also mention that I think you girls have already said it that people heal and respond to things differently so when you hear folks say but why didn't she make a um, complaint like why did she complain when it happened and it takes time to process what's happened to you it takes time to um, have the courage or Mm. to have to feel safe enough to complain and and so we've got to take that into account as well. Um, everyone experiences trauma differently and we've got to be able to respect that as well. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. You're tuned in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Today has been the last episode of our summer school series, uh, and it's been on prison abolition. And we just want to say that, you know, we've really enjoyed the last couple of weeks, and we hope that you have as well. And we also want to thank all of our incredible guests that we've had, not just today, but, yeah, just in the last couple of weeks as well. Yeah, the knowledge that people have shared, um, yeah, we could not thank you enough. It's been so valuable, and I don't know about you guys, but I have learned... Probably so more from summer yeah. school than I learned in my undergraduate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no offence, Latrobe. <laughs> um, if you want to share some feedback about how summer school, you know, helped you or didn't help you, <laughs> uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere. So let us know. And we'll be definitely continuing to discuss these issues beyond uh, this series, especially today's topic on prison abolition. Mm. I think we're really excited to continue yeah. um, to have conversations around it and learn. And mm. Yeah. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.